So, Jay, you're going to do one of your world-renowned screen shares on consciousness and healing. Is that right? Yes, that's it for today, all right? Just okay. a little tiny topic, you know. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> we are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated, the creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, check it out. Applied Neuroscience is having a workshop September 10th and 11th in Florida, Madura Beach, Florida. Hey, two ways you can participate. You can attend the workshop or you can do it remotely through TeamViewer or click on the link here, appliedneuroscience.com slash attend-ng-workshops. Hey, check it out. Dr. Thatcher is inviting everybody that attends to his house for a cookout. Sign up now. It's going to be a blast. Woohoo! If you have any questions, email QEEG at AppliedNeuroscience.com. Join us. Hey, thanks to our silver supporters, Mary Tracy's awesome QEEG training program at EEGStrategies.com and MindMedia's Nexus EEG Amplifier. Welcome aboard, Erwin. They're at MindMedia.com. And consciousness, quite often more of a philosophical discussion. There's lots of ways to think of consciousness. Is this like conscious unconscious or states of consciousness, like meditative states or altered consciousness. I'm going to basically talk about the foundational mechanism of being conscious at all and the ability to discriminate in a blinded way whether somebody is conscious or not. So this is the conscious-unconscious dimension that we're talking about, not altered consciousness or higher states of consciousness and that sort of thing. So We've dumbed down the topic to the extent that I can to being, is this person conscious? Are they able to perceive the outside world and interact with it in a, in a constructive way? Consciousness is often not based on data, but that's definitely not my style. So uh, we're going to actually look at some data here. And my apologies for this not being super simple but I think it's somewhat simplified. One of the things that will help is that I'm going to define, usually you do the entire presentation at the end, you get your conclusion, but I'm going to start out uh, by basically talking about the summary of the model that I'm going to present. Basically the model says when the mind and the brain interact with quantum nesting of rhythms, consciousness emerges. So in this model consciousness is an emergent property not an entity unto itself and you can predict the presence of consciousness simply by looking at the parts of the model that are the mind and the brain and in this model uh, dc field potentials or slow cortical potentials or infra low frequency infra slow frequency glial generation And that represents, in this model, things we refer to as the mind. Gamma is a representation of neural network properties. That will be uh, the brain. So when the DC field potentials and gamma interact, 
basically with nested rhythms, then consciousness can be predicted to exist. DC fields being generated by glia, uh, they, these are straight out of the uh, International Federation of Clinical Neurophysiology position paper by Steriati, um, Lopes de Silva, and everybody in 1990. So it, the, these are well accepted uh, uh, sources of these uh, uh, EEG phenomenon that we're going to be talking about. And as I go through the model, there's a lot of reference material here. Uh, this is essentially uh, the first slide here is discussing the mind aspect of that model. Uh, things associated with the mind are covert. Uh, they're not easily identified. Uh, one of them is intention. When you intend, it's not easy to tell that you're intending. I can intend to move my finger not move it at all, and then quit intending. And you couldn't see a damn thing from outside. You'd have to have an, uh, 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 the ability to see inside in order to identify uh, the mind uh, being associated with intention. But luckily, uh, uh, actually, uh, the, the, the word here is, is not actually done properly. Bereichschaft's potential is one word in German. Uh, not two words, Bereitschaft's potential. It's a slow negative uh, wave seen frontally uh, that's, that precedes voluntary movement. When you intend to move, you see the DC field light up electronegativity before the movement. And again, if you quit intending, that DC negativity goes away. And if you start to intend again, it'll come back. So you can actually see the intention to move, even independent of any movement itself. Now, attention is a, another kind of covert circumstance. It's the intention to perceive. Motor intention is what we've been talking about with the Bereitschaft's potential, voluntary movement. But intention to perceive is essentially electronegativity over the sensory area. When you shift your attention the, the DC field will shift appropriately. And other covert states are things like motivation and perceptual set. Um, uh, what are you focusing on with your perceptual cortical function? This isn't just in the head. Uh, the, the acupuncture points are also DC electronegative hotspots. And if you move a millimeter or so off of the acupuncture point, you can lose 100 to 200 microvolts worth of of energy. So uh, the system, the, this DC negativity, positivity system uh, is, is in the body, uh, not just in the brain. And uh, you, you can literally uh, see peripheral sensitivity as well. Uh, you can predict whether somebody is about to perceive pain by looking at the electronegative hotspots. If they go electropositive, you're not going to be feeling anything. So let's look at this shift of attention. On the left side here, the person is staring at the dot in front of them, but they're paying attention to the left visual field. The flashlight of attention isn't where their focus is. It's where they're basically interested in finding out information from it. So they're attending to the left visual field, although their focus is on the dot in the middle. The right side of the back of the head lights up with electronegativity 
while you're focusing on the left visual field. Obviously, there's a cross-hemispheric phenomenon. Left visual field is fed to the back of the brain on the right side. If you keep your eyes focused on the dot, but you shift your attention off to the right side, then the electronegative shifts to the left side. So you can literally not look where the person is pointing their eyes, where their focus is, but where their attention is. And you could literally identify where they're shifted their attention to. Now you could do this with uh, somatosensory as well. You can tell whether somebody's focusing on their feet, which are on the top of the head of the homunculus, their hands, which are about where C3 and C4 are, or their face. And if you shift your attention to the sensation in your feet, to your hands, to your face, you can identify exactly where they're attending by looking at where on the homunculus the electronegativity is on the somatosensory cortex. Attention is a covert function, but you can identify it with a DC cortical electronegativity, which turns on the cortex that you intend to perceive with. You literally can shape your perception. And obviously the, the Bayesian brain concept of us basically uh, seeing what we kind of intend to see is in fact quite true. Here we have Kawakami in Belgium and Hasselt, Belgium at a BFE meeting sitting on stage. And on the screen behind him is lots of physiology, muscle, brain, uh, electrodermal, uh, uh, temperature, all these are being monitored. And although you can't see it very accurately because of the resolution, there's a skewer, a barbecue skewer, not a sharpened barbecue skewer, but just the regular old barbecue skewer. Uh, it has a point on it, but it's not sharpened like a needle point. And he's got one stuck up through his tongue vertically, and he's got one stuck through his neck. Uh, uh, two folds of skin, in, out, in, out. And, and he did that uh, while we watched him not respond to the pain. There wasn't uh, electromyographic, uh, electrodermal. Uh, that He did not respond. Now, I can get an electrodermal response, which is like galvanic skin response as an old term for it. But uh, electrodermal response, I I can whisper something in your ear and you can two seconds later have a gigantic wave going on. So to not respond to pain uh, when you could respond easily to, you know, any kind of a sensory stimulus that's unexpected or uh, even something embarrassing whis whispered in your ear gets a gigantic electrodermal response. And basically what he does, the EEG on the bottom left here uh, is dancing away all the spectral uh, 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 bands are dancing away with activity and the far left one is the very slow contact at DC electronegativity the bottom couple of frequency bins end up reflecting that the left hand edge drops down the rest of the EG uh, quiets down then he does the stick and then back up comes all of the, the activity you know you've probably yeah, unfortunately probably had a, a, a a needle stuck in you, um, uh, and you feel the prick as it goes in. But once it's in there, it can sit there, and it's not really painful or problematic. So uh, he, he basically turns off his somatosensory strip, 
uh, by dropping out the electronegativity, he gets rid of his awareness of anything uh, somatosensory. And then he does the stick, and then back comes all the sensation. And he sits in the lotus position in front of the audience. And here he's about 75 years old. Uh, he, he was, um, as a younger man, well, he probably still was at, at this age, uh, 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 an extremely uh, fine martial artist. Um, he, he's the head of the Kudalini uh, uh, school uh, of, of practice in Japan. And uh, he came over with a big entourage and uh, uh, showed uh, his uh, pain regulatory skills on stage. Now, um, I had previously uh, seen the data, so I knew where he did this on the somatosensory strip. And I was there basically to tell him where to stick the uh, one channel of EEG to be able to identify the phenomenon of him turning off his somatosensory area. This is just a quick demo uh, that the real world, this is how it works. If you can literally turn off perception of pain, you have control over the slow particle potential in the, in the or, or DC field potential in the somatosensory area. There was actually a, a, a Belgian TV crew that came in they wanted to see his tongue to make sure he didn't already have a pierce through his tongue. Uh, they, they examined his neck, you know, and he was so uh, cooperative. He stuck his tongue out, wagged his tongue at the at the cameras and everything. He, he was uh, 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 delightfully interactive. Uh, he had translators and and uh, an entire entourage with him. Uh, basically, we're going to go through the model a little bit now. Mediation of the EEG synchronization by the DC fields requires a certain amount of field structure for you to be able to turn on and off a neural network. You have to have at least 100 microvolts per millimeter of structure. So if you move the electrode over on the cortex a, a millimeter or so off of the spot, it drops way off. So luckily, uh, ever since 1875, uh, Richard Catan uh, identified uh, that we have 150 to 200 microvolts per millimeter uh, uh, gradient field gradients in animals, which are not any different, uh, uh, basically an underlying mechanism uh, than humans. Uh, the DC fields were actually identified before the EEG was identified. British Medical Journal number two. Apparently, Katan was a little late to get it into journal number one, just like authors are now they didn't get the deadline, you know. Uh, the DC fields can mediate neural synchronization in a millisecond. So, uh, and what's mediating synchronization? You can do phase shift to initiate the rhythmicity, to start the rhythm uh, or restart the rhythm within a millisecond. And uh, this was worked by Roy John in 2005. Um, and essentially, there's a lot of people that have been talking about gamma being the binding mechanism. Uh, you have to bind a network together to create a perceptual phenomenon and motor control and those sorts of things. And uh, the people have talked about gamma being the thing that binds the network. But unfortunately, it's a little late to the party to be the thing that convened the party. It takes gamma 45 milliseconds after a stimulus 
to be present. And if you're going to process the information from the stimulus, you have to be there from the start, not 45 milliseconds late, fashionably late to the party, you know? And uh, so it's, it's just not really uh, the binding uh, mechanism. Uh, traditional teaching says gamma is the binding mechanism, but again, it's a little too late uh, to be the binding mechanism. This is a high density array. Um, uh, this, this is actually uh, 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 a person that hears something that they didn't expect. Now, it's a long time ago, and everybody probably perceives it as normal now. But the double negative of I can't get no satisfaction, um, uh, that drove English teachers freaking crazy when that came out. It's a double negative. I can't get no. That's, that's, it, that means you got plenty. You know? So um, uh, this, this is the brain responding to an unexpected semantic difference. So an English teacher hearing I can't get no uh, will turn off perception. Uh, the perceptual areas in the brain are basically turned off or, or modulated down. And the frontal lobe is basically turned on uh, to activate. And these networks are, are basically triggered by the unexpected semantic difference. Let's put this simply. It's a BS detector. When you, when you detect something that doesn't make any freaking sense, something that's just pure BS, your brain has a response to it. And it, it doesn't want to perceive any more BS, so it turns off the perceptual area. And it turns on the frontal lobe's evaluation, so you can figure out what the hell this BS is. This is an example of a high-density network that turns on sections frontally and turns off sections posteriorly, uh, to an unexpected semantic difference. And uh, again, uh, uh, a network needs to be instantly bound or instantly unbound in order for the brain to actually work. The, the early component of an event-related potential where the brain is responding to, to an event is the arrival at the cortex of the signal, about 100 milliseconds after the stimulus. So you flash an image in front of the eyes, about 100 milliseconds later, it comes to the back of the head. You get a big burst of gamma at the back of the head uh, when that arrival occurs, phase lock gamma. So 100 milliseconds is simply the arrival at the back of the head of, of the information. Now, you don't know that you're actually seeing something at that point. Um, it's the arrival on the cortex, but it's not the ability to understand what the heck it is. It's just the arrival. It has to be processed to figure it out. And if you get a number of things that are presented near the same point in time, if they're within 75 to 100 milliseconds of each other, they're packeted into the same perceptual frame, which is essentially an alpha packet. And, uh, um, and that information is shunted around as though it happened at identical times. You can literally synchronize perception uh, with one perceptual stream uh, with, with a, a second perceptual stream. It, this was demonstrated to us very nicely. There was a, an XY uh, grid with uh, dots of light, random 
uh, in time and space. So they would pop up any old place on the screen at a, at a, a random timing. They then turned on music that you really kind of knew, an Eric Clapton song. And it looked like the dots were actually dancing to the music. Uh, they weren't. They were random. But you, your, your perceptual stream of the music you knew ordered the, the random perceptions, and it looked like they were, in fact, perfectly timed together. The arrival at the back of the head and the processing in the sensory area in, again, about the 100 millisecond time domain. And they're then projected up to the front a little bit later, 130 to 280 milliseconds. This is projected up to the front of the brain. The P2 at about 200 milliseconds is frontal arrival. Now you're aware that you perceive something, but you don't know what it is. There's no conscious awareness. It's just you're aware that there was something. This isn't full conscious awareness. And at it's 200 milliseconds after a stimulus, an event-related perception here. And phase lock gamma basically is seen in this time domain um, uh, also. And the posterior temporal phase lock of this large uh, distribution from the front to the back of the head, um, posterior temporal to the front, all phase locked, again, at about 200 milliseconds. Sensory detection at 100 milliseconds awareness, but not conscious awareness at 200 milliseconds. At 300 milliseconds or the P3, P300 or P3, um, basically that's when it hits the back of your head. And now you're able to differentiate stimuli. So you're not just aware, but you can identify what, whether it's category A or category B. So uh, you can differentiate the stimuli but you're really still not fully consciously aware of all of this. Um, the event-related potential cycle that we just saw is just one cycle that can, helps to construct an entire frame of consciousness. It takes two cycles for you to be consciously aware. If you pair two stimuli together uh, and they differ, uh, that difference basically amplifies uh, the, uh, the signal size. And this is called the mismatch negativity or MMN. What this basically is uh, like a go and a no-go signal. You can see the size of the difference. And this is a normal person. This is high functioning, middle functioning, and low functioning ADD. They're all using the same spot in the brain. It's not like ADD people use the wrong spot or something. It's the same location in the brain. But the difference between the perceptual difference, the ability to see the difference between the two stimuli gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And again, it's it's linearly related to the to the attention in ADD or, or the inattention in ADD. And this is Dr. Kropotov's work from 2008. Clemish in 2004 at, at, in Winterthur, um, a wonderful little uh, uh, small town outside of Zurich, uh, he presented um, that the event-related potential waveform can be, that morphology can be created if you instantaneously turn on alpha and theta and sum them and let them run. And, and it was interesting because Clemish presented the waveform of ERP as basically capable of being generated by synchronizing alpha and theta. But Gert Furcheller stood up in the audience and 
very politely said, it's a very interesting theory, but there's no mechanism for the phase reset. There's no way to start the, the phase locking of alpha and theta. But if you remember a couple of slides earlier, one year later, Roy John identified that slow critical potentials could in fact phase lock and, and, and initiate the phase locking uh, uh, that, that's seen in this. So there is a mechanism. It just wasn't known in 2004. I have to say that the European meeting, all the differences that were there didn't result in yelling and screaming and finger pointing. These are all very polite interactions between academics. Um, it was a little bit of a, uh, a shocking difference from the circular firing squad we sometimes see here in the U.S., um, but I, I truly appreciated that, uh, that the intellectual honesty of challenging somebody without, you know, chastising them or embarrassing them or anything. Um, it, it was really good to see a uh, very good example for some of the folks from the U.S. that went over to the meeting. Basically, this time series of alpha and theta being phase locked together represents two systems, the limbic system's episodic memory system which is seen as theta, and the thalamocortical semantic memory system, which is seen in the alpha band. And literally, if you're going to uh, have memory work, you have to synchronize uh, the episodic and semantic memory systems for long-term potentiation to occur. Uh, the mismatch negativity data that we see here suggests that if somebody is a conscious individual, they're actually monitoring the recent past and they're comparing that with the present. And that suggests that consciousness is the remembered present. Now, that should have triggered a semantic non sequitur detector, the remembered present. That's a tense error, you know, uh, uh, past and present in the same phrase here. So, uh, but that's published neuroscience. You know, it doesn't make any sense for, uh, to the gram grammarian, but. Um, uh, consciousness is literally the remembered presence. It requires two ERP cycles, one to perceive and lay down a memory trace, and then the next one to compare the ongoing perception to that memory trace. So the first P300 lays down a memory. The second P300 cycle uh, allows you to now become consciously aware when the second signal hits the front of the head at 200 milliseconds. Now, um, in, in 1979, Libet at UC San Francisco uh, identified that it took 500 milliseconds for somebody to be consciously aware of something. But, you know, everything is referred back to the event stream onset, so you don't really sense it as a delay. But essentially, the first cycle uh, is perceive 100 milliseconds, aware 200 milliseconds, differentiating the stimuli at 300 milliseconds. But the second ERP cycle, in order to get to the frontal lobe where awareness was seen, takes another 200 milliseconds. Conscious awareness requires the second signal to hit. The first signal lays down a memory trace. The second uh, is the perception is compared to the memory. And then you have conscious awareness. And the math works out perfectly. P300, 300 milliseconds, and the P2, 200 milliseconds added together gives you a 500 millisecond delay for conscious awareness. Again, awareness is different than conscious awareness. 
awareness took 200 milliseconds. It took the second 200 millisecond arrival uh, to end up uh, being the 500 millisecond total. Basically, gamma uh, back propagation and network phase locking is a resonant property. Once you create a network, gamma will be a resonant property within the network. It takes two wavelet cycles for it to be resonant. It has to go over and back to be a resonant uh, property within a network. And again, it's too light to be the binding, but it does end up being an important aspect of the network. If the DC fields activate a network, gamma becomes resonant in that network. And if that resonance of gamma and the presence of the slow critical potential are what's required for conscious awareness. Now, the nesting of frequencies is a, is a phenomenon that I've referred to here. And nesting is a, is, is a quantum effect in the EEG. And Jordan Popjordanoff um, in 2004 presented this information, uh, again, in a meeting in Europe. Um, and he was the head of uh, the Soviet Union's uh, quantum physics group. And uh, uh, when the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, he was the head of the um, uh, Academy of uh, uh, science and art in in uh, Macedonia, uh, a, a very wonderful gentleman. So what's nesting? Here we see uh, hippocampal septal neurons spiking, and the density of the spikes are these uh, strips of darker uh, dots here. And at the bottom here, we've got gamma at 100 hertz. What we see here is the gamma uh, dense, very dense spiking. Essentially, the theta rhythm and the gamma rhythm end up interacting. The theta nest modulates the gamma. You'll see that there's about seven gamma wavelets in each theta nest. And literally, the number of gamma wavelets that fit in your theta nest is your digit span. How many numbers can you remember? And the most people can remember seven numbers. I mean, it's phone numbers, basically, you know. Uh, the, the theta nest allows gamma to sit in it, and it modulates the gamma. But, you know, the infra-low frequency nest modulates the entire EG. Theta and alpha and gamma are all uh, initiated and turned on by the slow particle potential's base nest. We are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated, the creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, check it out. Applied Neuroscience is having a workshop September 10th and 11th in Florida, Madura Beach, Florida. Hey, two ways you can participate. You can attend the workshop, or you can do it remotely through TeamViewer, or click on the link here, appliedneuroscience.com slash attend-ng-workshops. Hey, check it out. Dr. Thatcher is inviting everybody that attends to his house for a cookout. Sign up now. It's going to be a blast. Woohoo! If you have any questions, email QEEG at AppliedNeuroscience.com. Join us. So the DC fields are the base nest. 
that modulates the entire EG spectrum. And there's a good literature on that, the infralow frequency literature. Yeah. Basically, the biz index is the interaction between DC and gamma. Uh, the aspect medical uh, group uh, basically uh, uses the bispectral index to predict uh, uh, consciousness, but unconsciousness more than consciousness. Um, they use this to uh, make sure somebody is going to be deep enough uh, so that they're not going to experience the surgery and they're not going to move when the surgeon does something. The surgeons don't want a moving target. Uh, and the person's not going to remember anything when they come to at the end of the surgery. So the depth of uh, anesthesia is measured uh, and they're, lo they're looking at 0.38 hertz, an infra-low frequency, and 38 hertz, a gamma frequency. So to the extent that they're coupled, you're conscious. To the extent that they decouple, you become unconscious. And they want to hover you deep enough, but not too deep. The biz index has some measurements other than just the 38 and, and 0.38 hertz. Um, that are, they look for flat line uh, sections, and that's too deep. Obviously, you don't want to have a flat line EEG and uh, a burst suppression, which precedes the flat line. So if they start to see burst suppression, uh, they, they realize they've gone too deep. Uh, theta nests gamma. Uh, gamma wavelets um, uh, basically determine your digit span, as we just described in the earlier slide. Let's look at a decreased nesting of gamma with less attention. Um, this is a JTFA, a joint time frequency analysis. This is 1,100 milliseconds. There's a brief base period. And then things that are synchronized are colored in the hotter colors and things that are desynchronized are in the darker colors. And this is a normal person, a high functioning and low functioning APD as measured by a CPT task. You can see the gamma, uh, this, this is frequency and this is time. This goes up to 74 uh, cycles a second. And you can see up in the 30 plus hertz range, there's a big sheet of it here. One, two, three, four, five. Number six happens right on the line here. There's six bursts of gamma. The gamma, uh, the gamma is nested in theta. So there's six bursts in a second. Now, the high-functioning ADD, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, but they're very weak. The low-functioning ADD is missing some of the nests. So, uh, and beta synchronizes much later. Uh, the original intent of the slide wasn't to look at the gamma, it was to look at the beta synchronization. And uh, uh, the, the point in time where they reacted, uh, uh, reaction time is where the little arrow is. And, the normal person reacts fairly quickly, uh, lower functioning uh, and lower functioning ADD. Uh, the, the last one responds, almost doesn't respond. It's at 900 plus milliseconds. So it's just about at the very end of the one second period. So uh, the nesting of gamma ends up being something that the uh, uh, conscious person has and ADD actually on the biz index looks like they're drowsy. Uh, the biz index suggests that they're not fully conscious, but you know they, they don't have good attentional skills, that's for sure. And uh, this was by Yuri Kropotov in 2000. The cross-frequency coupling um, in the biz index basically looks at, at uh, cross-frequency coupling between lower frequencies and higher frequencies.
this is the 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 biz uh, bispectral display. Um, uh, this is frequency and frequency. So 10 hertz and 10 hertz should re uh, basically be, um, oh, it's the same thing. So you're gonna get uh, uh, dots along the 45 degree line here that are just the presence of a frequency. Anything that happens off to the side, not on the 45 are harmonics. Um, here the 10 has an approximate 20 as a harmonic. So 10, oops, 10 and 20 are related uh, on the on the bispectral index. Now, this is a normal person. You know, uh, cross-frequency coupling isn't all good. It's how consciousness works, but it's also present in pathology. Um, uh, you can see the, the excessive non-45 degree angle content. This individual has Parkinson's. Uh, and Parkinsonism, the network is formed, but it's frozen. It's locked. It, it doesn't have the dynamics. And the person becomes rigid and stiff. And uh, Parkinson tremor and rigidity in Parkinsonism is identified basically with, with non-45 degree angle excess coupling. And uh, here uh, we've got uh, slow content and fast content that are coupled. This is uh, the average of all controls. And you can see basically 45 degree angle line and a little harmonic. Uh, this is all patients, regardless of the DSM categorization. And the, the, you know, obviously there's some non uh, 45 degree angle line uh, uh, cross-frequency coupling in, in Parkinsonism, as well as all patients that are, that are uh, symptomatic patients. Now, Dirk de Ritter and his group identified that the cross-frequency coupling that you see in Parkinsonism is also seen in tinnitus and pain and also uh, depression or uh, reward deficiency syndromes like OCD and eating disorders, as well as depression at the anterior cingulate. So um, uh, th these uh, bispectral displays are important uh, ways to look at the EEG. They're not very commonly used in a lot of the neurofeedback world, but uh, they, they do reflect uh, clinical presence of uh, pathology. So consciousness is spawned by the cross-spectral interaction between DC fields, which we, we suggest reflect the mind, covert states, intention, attention, motivation, uh, sensory set, and they're generated by glia. And the brain's EG rhythms are from neural networks and that's especially gamma. Um, and the, the implication of this model is that if you're going to look at people's consciousness and perhaps even transpersonal interactions of consciousness, we should be looking for cross-spectral frequency changes. And I was approached by a group that wanted to look at a healer. And I basically said, well, I don't have any belief system around healer Healy stuff, but is there evidence of him having healed something? I, I mean, just some objective evidence of him healing something. And they said, oh yeah, he's been studying at the Princeton Anomaly Research Lab, the Paralab, um, uh, uh, treating Petri dishes and cancer-induced uh, rats and things like that. So he's he's been shown to actually be able to heal stuff. And I said, okay, I, 
you know, if you want to look at the brain of somebody doing something, as long as you uh, end up having somebody who can actually demonstrate the something that they're doing, I'll be happy to look at the brain activity. So this is essentially uh, looking at Bill Bankston, who's a, a well-known healer. And we're, we're going to be talking about uh, Schumann resonances. And uh, Schumann resonances are uh, an electromagnetic frequency resonance that the Earth has. Um, uh, you know, the Earth has an electrically conductive uh, layer high up uh, in the ionosphere. Uh, and it has electrically conductive ground. Um, in between is a semiconductor air, the atmosphere. Semiconductive content in between two conductive things is a capacitive chamber. So our Earth has a capacitive chamber that has a resonant frequency in it that's actually triggered by lightning. When a big lightning bolt strikes, um, it, it actually creates a 7.83 cycles a second oscillation. And that's literally how long it takes the electromagnetic uh, activity to circle uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Earth's uh, uh, capacitive chamber. So it's not just 7.83, it's also all the harmonics of that. And harmonics are what you see in the bispectral index. Uh, you can see multiple peaks of harmonics. And we're also going to be discussing um, a tunable bell. Uh, the the uh, gamma is a resonant property of having a neural network. Neural network is like a bell. If you create a bell, it can resonate. And uh, what we're doing here is discussing this, the ability of the Healy and the healer to end up having entrainment due to the Healy and healer uh, having their frequencies synchronized. So, and uh, we're talking about connection here. Uh, it's not the same as content. If I call you on the phone and you pick up the phone, we have a connection. We don't have a conversation yet. We have a connection. And all we're showing is the connection. We don't know for sure whether this is also a delivery of content in the healing. We just show that this is a connection at a distance between the healer and the healee. So this is the healer at rest. He's got an approximately 11 hertz alpha peak. He's a, actually, he's, he's a professor at a university on the East Coast. Uh, he, he's not uh, swaddled in, in, in the clothing at a mountain cave somewhere. This is, uh, this is a, a regular guy doing regular work, but he has a specific skill, which he learned. And he actually teaches people how to have the same kind of healing property uh, influence on the surround. So this is him at rest. This is the bispectral index with all sorts of cross-frequency harmonics. Um, the primary frequency is no longer 11. This is 7.81. Oops. 7.81 hertz and a doubling and a doubling and another doubling. These are all harmonics. 7.81, uh, this, this second, third, fourth, fifth harmonic is gamma. So um, uh, what we see here is, again, cross-frequency coupling with multiple nodes cutting across uh, and 7.83 being the primary uh, uh, peak from, uh, from, from the 
uh, individual. So uh, this is a resonant um, uh, Schumann resonance with all the harmonics. And um, this is what happens between the healer and the healy, or healer and subject. Uh, this is P3 electrode, PZ electrode, and P4 electrode. And we're looking at the phase. You'll notice that the healer is putting out this nice wave. The Healy is amplified. The line is very thick because we have to turn it up to see anything at all. And they're out of phase. And within a second of the healer starting the resonant frequency, the Healy is now in phase and very large by comparison to what they were. Now, imagine a, 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 an opera singer um, hitting the harmonic of the room that they're in. Their voice actually rides on top of itself. So they amplify by riding on top of the background uh, rhythmicity in the chamber. And this is, again, the healer and the healy synchronizing less than a second and again, amplifying the signal because of the, the fact that they're uh, in phase and um, as such amplifying, like an opera singer's voice writing on top of itself uh, as a harmonic within the room. So let's look a little bit at cross-frequency coupling and um, uh, some of how it looks uh, within classical EEG. Uh, this is uh, Knolte's uh, work. And what we see here is gamma frequencies. And this is gamma 2 up at, up at well, 80 to 100. And ripples up even faster than that, up to 250 hertz. And um, you can see that there's uh, sheets of it happening. This is the theta wave. And basically, um, and it's inverted from traditional EEG. Uh, uh, when it's going down, uh, it's actually more electronegative. I don't know why they flipped it over, uh, but uh, um, essentially the bursts of gamma happen in the negative half wave of the theta frequency. So again, nested frequencies, gamma nested in theta up front for motor and memory and attention. Here at the back of the head, the gamma's nested in alpha. And again, the negative half wave, and you get big sheets of gamma two and ripples, all these very high frequencies up to 250 hertz, way beyond the traditional EG labs uh, amplifiers, which usually stop at 70, which is down here. So um, when you actually open up the high frequency end, uh, you can end up seeing all this very interesting uh, high-frequency sheets of content uh, that are nested in theta or alpha, depending upon whether it's frontal, where theta is more predominant, episodic memory is, is uh, theta-based, and semantic memory, which is alpha-based at the back of the head. So uh, uh, these are nested uh, rhythms, and it does, again, I think, show uh, the phase-amplitude coupling of cross-frequency coupling. And all of these frequencies are going to be nested in the infra-low frequency. When it goes electronegative, the EEG is dancing and busy. When it goes electropositive, the EEG goes quiet. So um, uh, 
that this model basically suggests that, uh, and this is back to the same image we saw before of the gamma uh, uh, dropping down and down as you get less attentive, normal, high-functioning ADD, low-functioning ADD, and decreased nesting, uh, basically with decreased level of attention. Uh, that This is real data. You can see it working. You can see the relationship between the level of um, consciousness uh, and the, the EG phenomenon of cross-frequency coupling and nested rhythms. This is not a philosophical discussion. This is actually data-based. And again, the Biz Index is an FDA-registered device that's done tens of millions of surgeries. And uh, they, uh, uh, if you have same-day surgery in the U.S. or internationally, you probably have the Biz Index used on you. Um, uh, they, they have a concentric electrode, a central electrode, and an outer electrode. Uh, so it's a single electrode patch. And they say, stick it on your forehead. Well, does that mean consciousness emerges from your forehead? No, it doesn't really matter where you stick that. It's going to give you the same biz index. Uh, but it's easier to stick it on the forehead because there's no hair there. And this little sticky double ring electrode goes nicely on a forehead. Now, I could probably get back to like C3 and C4, FZ uh, on, on my head pretty easily. Um, but again, they basically just tell the anesthesiologist, stick this on the forehead. Most anesthesiologists have no idea what the biz index does. It's a box that gives them a number from zero to 100. They're supposed to put their patient at about 60 and keep them there. Not too low, you're passing too much gas or giving too much anesthesia. Uh, not too high a number because then they're too conscious, too awake. They may remember the surgery or move during the surgery. And again, surgeons don't want a moving target. This model actually has real world consequence. We can predict consciousness. We can predict uh, the cross-frequency coupling and, uh, and uh, all of that with healers and healies. Um, this model, uh, when you kick the tires with actual real world uh, content, um, the model doesn't fail. We don't have to hypothesize structures that we can't identify. Um, uh, and uh, so this, this model actually has real world uh, implications. Um, if you have somebody whose consciousness is, has been lost or altered, um, you can end up trying to recover consciousness uh, using this model uh, uh, with, with the uh, inflow frequencies and gamma. As I mentioned, every piece of this model has references. This is not the only reference page, it's page one of the references. Here's page two of the references. And so uh, uh, what I would suggest is that what we have here is a model of how consciousness works and the implications of that model uh, on uh, healing and healers. I was actually invited after we published this paper by a group um, that had a healer uh, and uh, they were going to do a demonstration of his healing and they had a few thousand people around the world that were all going to at a certain moment in time have healing intentions towards the person. Um, uh, the, the, the person was basically uh, recorded 
and uh, they 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 wanted me to identify when the healing occurred, and they had a five minute base period and two five minute periods. They wanted me to tell them which period it occurred during. And all I did is look for the bispectral index and look for the resonances. And when I saw the resonance, I said, well, it's that period. And they got all excited. They said, oh, this is fabulous. I said, well, God, don't show this data to anybody. It's a 50-50 chance, you know? <laughs> so, you know, next time you do this, do a base period and then nine periods and randomly pick two of the nine periods for healing if I can identify the two periods out of those nine, now you're talking. And, you know, that's now data that you can start to think, well, gee, I think there might be something to this uh, model. And uh, they did that. And I spotted two out of nine accurately. The model works and it predicts things uh, with a blinded radar. Uh, well, I'm not totally blinded. I have one eye, yeah, yeah. you know, so... You don't, you don't have to uh, have um, theoretical stuff um, that, that, that you can't point to in literature or point to in the real world. You don't have to hypothesize uh, some gigantic thing. Um, this, is, this is measurable uh, features that you can see within the EEG and transpersonal. The anesthesiologists, when they're putting the person out, are you trying to shut off the hippocampus like you do when you drink too much or a version of that? Uh, well, if you drink too much and you get your brain too slow uh, uh, and, and you start to have alpha dropout, uh, like you do during uh, drowsiness and you're starting to fall asleep, as yeah. very similar to driving down the freeway. You can go into highway hypnosis and your alpha drops out, you're in a stage one drowsiness uh, on your way to sleep, but not asleep. And you don't remember how you got to exit 20. Uh, there were four or five exits that you didn't remember. Well, right. your brain wasn't encoding uh, things to memory at that point. Um, and that can happen. It can happen with alcohol consumption to get you also to a, a, a less conscious state. So you don't encode. And you can predict that they're not encoding because they've lost their entire background alpha frequency, uh, the alpha dropout. In vigilance modeling, there's A stages and B stages of vigilance. And the A stages, you're starting to get a little drowsy, but then B1 is an alpha dropout. When that happens, you're in stage one drowsy. And again, that's the highway hypnosis point. So. Second question, Jay, is, and I know you didn't see the episode. We talked about it a little bit before the show, but there's a new show on Apple TV called Surface. In the very first episode, they address neurofeedback as a treatment for somebody that fell off of a boat, lost her memory, and she was advised to go get some neurofeedback done. Is that part of consciousness or what? Because I'm hoping that that episode increases awareness for, for, the, for the treatment and the trainings. But what is going on when you lose your memory and using neurofeedback? Just a quick take. You know, I'm not sure what happened on that individual case. You know, it would be interesting to actually look at her data or EG data. Uh, but uh, memory retrieval requires a hippocampal function and uh, anoxia, hypoxia, which if she fell off of a boat, she may have been uh, uh, 
partially drowned, um, uh, a, a, a near drowning. Uh, if you're drowned, you're gone. If it's a near yeah. drowning, you come back, you know? So she might've had, had a near drowning experience and, and had a disturbance of the ability to retrieve at that point. Uh, again, it, we'd have to look at her specific data set. Right. There's also of some course, they, they don't show you the screen. <laughs> there's also some circumstances where there's, you know, uh, that there's traumatic memories that may occur and those can be suppressed. And uh, um, uh, you have to retrieve a memory. And uh, if, if you've got an unconscious avoidance of that retrieval, it may be very difficult to retrieve that memory. One of the nice things about alpha theta style training is that you bring up those unconscious memories from the theta state. Um, where you have pre-conscious, unconscious material encoded in earlier life experience or deeper levels of consciousness where the experience happened. And uh, uh, that it, it's, it's well known. Basically, you train alpha up uh, so that somebody can hold an adult awareness and you train theta up so the theta actually gets bigger than the alpha. That's a theta crossover, as they call it. And at that point, you've got unconscious material present in front of a conscious observer. Uh, it's not like you've gone unconscious and you ex experience the unconscious material when you're unconscious, uh, like a dreamlike state where you wake up and, damn, I know I was dreaming a second ago. What the hell was it about? You know, there, there's sometimes a hard border between uh, what the material is during the unconscious state and conscious awareness. I mean, you were there a second ago uh, where did, where did all that information go? Well, it was in a different state. It's not yeah. like Missouri or North Dakota. It's just as an altered state, uh, a, a different state of consciousness. And you have to have some awareness when you enter that state in order to retrieve it to conscious awareness and deal with it. And the alpha theta training and neurofeedback quite often ends up bringing up traumatic experiences, Sometimes you don't even know that there were very difficult experiences. Sometimes the therapist will guess that. Um, but when you're doing alpha theta style training, uh, the therapist normally ends up knitting together a, a network of people to support the individual should an ab reaction, uh, an uncomfortable, um, uh, disturbing memory pop back up. Early life trauma, uh, war theater trauma. I mean, the, the, the kinds of awful experiences that you might recall are varied and, and more of the kinds that you can list. So, um, but so, so it, alpha it, theta for amnesia? Alpha theta may bring uh, back in memories. Again, episodic recall requires uh, theta content and uh, uh, long-term recall, things you know, requires an intact alpha. So, um, you know, the, uh, the, both of those systems have to work for memory to really be something that clicks. And individuals that have faster alpha have better semantic and declarative memory recall. Uh, they, they can actually name things and pull up factoids that they've learned better than somebody that has slow alpha. Uh, this was originally studied by Clemish at, at uh, in Salzburg, Austria, uh, uh, Consciousness and Sleep Lab. And uh, they identified slow alpha, poor semantic and declarative performance, fast alpha, superior performance. 
once they actually got exposed to the neurofeedback virus uh, by attending a meeting in the U.S., uh, they came up with three years of, ex of research uh, based on the idea of neurofeedback able to operantly change the brain's function. So remember all those people that had poor performance? What if we sped up their alpha? Individual alpha frequency plus one cycle a second, IAF plus one. So they sped up people's background alpha a silly cyclosecond faster, uh, kind of like the old Virginia Slim commercial, silly millimeter longer, you know, it didn't matter yeah. at all. Well, why, why would a one cyclosecond shift make any difference at all? Well, one cyclosecond faster, they ended up with their better memory function than they had when they were one cyclosecond slower. And, you know, that silly millimeter or silly one, one cyclosecond ends up being very important. Um, and uh, they, they basically identified that it wasn't just a correlation, it's a causal relationship between semantic and declarative memory and alpha frequency tuning. So, you know, if, if somebody is starting to lose their ability to remember factoids, you know, you get 60, 70, 80 years old and your memory gets a mm -hmm. little slippery, um, can't quite grab onto those factoids, you know, you know them. You can't pull them out. Speed up your alpha cycle a second and watch everything pop back. The seniors who experienced speeding up of their background alpha in Tom Budzinski's study, uh, the Ponce de Leon project uh, in Florida. Obviously, there's plenty of seniors looking for the youth in Florida, apparently. Um, uh, but the Ponce de Leon project, basically, the seniors coined the term brain brightening for their experience. A faster alpha is a higher resolution perception, more snapshots per second. And they walk out of the session and start crisper and sharper. And the tip of the tongue can't quite pull up the name or number uh, is gone. Uh, the, their, their brains are brightened. And they came up with that term. This wasn't the promotional you know, hype that the, the researcher was using to, to kind of give them some perceptual bias towards them being improved or something. They came up with a term based on their experience. And uh, unfortunately, Tom and, and uh, Helen are past now, uh, but um, uh, and, and Tom was a major researcher even back in the early 70s when I started, but, you know, another one of the greats that's gone. So this type of uh, recall, would you put this under the umbrella of consciousness or is this a separate item? Well, uh, consciousness has to have some ability to pull up factoids to be conscious and interactive and and uh, right. uh, uh, fully aware. So it, it, it's not a one-to-one -one relationship, but they're definitely related, conjoined twins of some sort. Jay, thank you so much, my friend. It's been fun. Thank you all for watching Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters. We are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated, the creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, check it out. Applied Neuroscience is having a workshop September 10th and 11th in Florida, Madura Beach, Florida. Hey, two ways you can participate. 
You can attend the workshop or you can do it remotely through TeamViewer or click on the link here, appliedneuroscience.com slash attend-ng-workshops. Hey, check it out. Dr. Thatcher is inviting everybody that attends to his house for a cookout. Sign up now. It's going to be a blast. Woohoo! If you have any questions, email QEEG at AppliedNeuroscience.com. Join us. Hey, thanks to our silver supporters, Mary Tracy's awesome QEEG training program at EEGStrategies.com and Mind Media's Nexus EEG Amplifier. Welcome aboard, Erwin. They're at MindMedia.com. Three things our listeners can do to help us spread the word of neurofeedback. Number one, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Number two, give us a review on whatever platform you listen to. Five stars is appreciated, but Jay Gunkelman will accept four and a half. Hey, if you have the means, please support us on Patreon slash Neuronoodle. There are different levels in which you can support us, whether you're a mom or dad or a clinician. There's even an option where you can have your own Q&A with our own Jay Gunkelman. This support help, helps us improve the quality of our content. Hey, trying to get these video edits even better, even better. Again, we thank you all for watching. Cue the non-copyrighted music. <laughs> <laughs>